This is Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define and sometimes disrupt the world of contemporary photography. I'm Karen Irvine, Chief Curator and Deputy Director at the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago, with guests Jess T. Dugan and Raphael Silby. Jess T. Dugan is a St. Louis-based photographer who is interested in representations of identity, particularly as they apply to LGBTQ communities and specializing in portraiture. They received their MFA from Columbia College Chicago in 2014 and has their work in the permanent collections of over 35 museums. Dugan's monographs include To Survive on the Shore, photographs and interviews with transgender and gender nonconforming older adults, published by Kara Verlag in 2018, and Every Breath We Drew, published by Daylight Books in 2015. Currently, they are the 2020-2021 Henry L. and Natalie E. Freund Teaching Fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. Raphael Soldi is a Peruvian-born, Seattle-based artist and curator. His practice centers on how queerness and masculinity intersect with topics such as immigration, memory, and loss. In addition to his extensive art practice, Soldi was part of the curatorial team at the Photographic Center Northwest for five years, and has realized many curatorial projects since that time. He is currently co-curator of The High Wall, an outdoor video projection program dedicated to immigrant artists and artists working on themes of diaspora and borderlands. He has published two monographs this year, Imagined Futures with our friends Candor Arts here in Chicago and Carga Monton, a self-published book. Dugan and Soldi are both co-founders of the Strange Fire Collective, along with Zora J. Murph and Hamida Glasgow. Strange Fire is a project that highlights work made by women, people of color, and queer and trans artists. Today we are discussing an artist they each have chosen from the MOCP's permanent collection, as well as their own work and practice. To help stop the spread of COVID-19, we are recording this session live over Zoom and not in person at the WCRX-FM radio studios. The full unedited interview will be made available on the museum's Vimeo page please visit mocp.org backslash focal point for more. So welcome to you both. Raphael's with us from Seattle this morning and Jess is in St. Louis. Uh, normally when we record these podcasts, the first segment is recorded in our vault where we stand with the artists and we look at the objects that they've chosen to discuss. Today instead, I'm going to share my screen with everybody in our audience and show you the pictures that you've both picked out. And I'm gonna ask you, starting with Jess, to state your name, tell us the title and the maker of the work that you've chosen, and then could you briefly describe it to us so that the listeners who will be listening just to the podcast audio version have a sense of what we're all looking at right now? Sure, yeah, and thank you so much, Karen. I'm really happy to be here today, uh, especially with you and Raphael. And as you know, I have a lot of love for and a, a longer history with the MOCP, so it's especially sweet. My name is Jess T. Dugan, and I chose the collection work by Diane Arbus titled Hermaphrodite and a Dog in a Carnival Trailer, Maryland, 1970, which is a black and white photograph. It's a portrait. It depicts a person sitting in what we know from the title to be a carnival trailer 
their left hand is resting on the table in front of them and their right hand is resting on their hip and they're in a kind of two-piece sequins performative outfit wearing makeup their hair is fixed they're wearing jewelry and uh you know earrings and a necklace and they're looking right at arbus which is important uh, to me and i think to the work and then Raphael, can you please do the same sure hi everybody thank you karen and mocp for inviting us to this conversation my name is Raphael soldi and I chose an image by Harry Callahan titled Eleanor Port Huron 1954. As we know, Harry Callahan photographed his wife, Eleanor, expansively throughout his whole career. This is a black and white image. It's fairly square. I don't think it's quite a square. Uh, I think it's kind of a, a squared rectangle. It's a black and white image. It is mostly foliage from top to bottom. And there is a nude Eleanor laying on the grass uh, with her backside to us. And the sort of top third half, half of the image is very, very dark foliage. And then the foliage gets a little bit lighter toward the bottom. And I love how the grass is almost lace-like. And then Eleanor and uh, the towel she's laying on seem to have almost been blown by the wind into the image. And there's quite a bit of contrast between the whiteness of the flower, of, of the the towel and her skin as well. She's fair skinned against the darkness of the, the foliage. I'm sure a lot of it that was done also in, in the dark room, but it's just a, a very elegant, very simple, very beautiful form. Uh, this organic form of the body against the flatness of, of the foliage behind her and around her. Thank you. So can you explain to the audience how you made those picks out of 16,000 plus objects? Was it difficult to decide um, which image resonated with you? And, and also, um, how do those images relate to your own personal practice? Sure. So, you know, Arbus was definitely an early influence for me. She was someone I discovered in college. I had discovered some other artists before that, but it wasn't until I got to college that I discovered Arbus. And as a young person, I found her work to be validating. And I always felt a sense of empathy in it, which I now understand, um, you know, so much more about it and, and that that's not the case for everyone. But as I've matured as an artist, I've thought more about representation and photographing the other and what these kind of interactions must have been like for her. So I thought this piece was interesting because it brings up all of those questions about uh, picturing the other, about representation, about how images function for different people in different ways. You know, my 18-year-old queer self was really excited by this work and my 34-year-old queer self still really likes the work, but I see it as just much more complicated um, so that's why I chose it. It's, you know, there's so many amazing works in the collection and I could have chosen a lot of different ones for different reasons, but I thought this one, um, is just kind of a complicated conversation around representation and then also language, you know, thinking about the title, hermaphrodite's not a word we use anymore. And so thinking about how language changes over time, particularly when it's speaking to identity, which is also something I think about in my work. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, and the scholarship as well, right, around Arbus is very com controversial, actually, in mm -hmm. that regard. You know, was she exploiting these marginalized communities or was she actually kind of identifying with them and trying to elevate them and connect them to her pictures of more mainstream society? So that's a great, great um, 
point to make. Thanks, Jess. And Raphael, what was it about the Callahan piece that mm -hmm. spoke to you? You know, I went back and forth. I wasn't as familiar with the, I've been to the museum many times, but I wasn't as familiar with the collection as Jess was. And it's a huge collection. And um, when I first logged in, I was like, okay, where do I, where do I begin? And I thought maybe of starting first at, you know, looking for something that would speak to what's going on today. And then I, I realized that I wanted to speak to something maybe a little bit more personal. And I knew that Callahan had this huge connection to uh, Chicago. And I assumed the museum would have a pretty extensive collection of his work. And you do. When I was in high school and I was already very interested in photography, but not thinking yet that this is where my life was going to go, I walked into my high school library and I found a Callahan book and pulled it open and immediately just my heart started, you know, beating so fast. And there was an, such a connection right away for me with those pictures. Uh, there was a tidiness to the way he sees that really spoke to my personality and, and my interests. I think at the time I was young and so excited about photography, but didn't have any references. And it was so cool to find something and, and think like, I want to do that. And Right at that time, the National Gallery in D.C., I, I was in Washington, in D.C., in Maryland at the time, and the National Gallery had a beautiful show, uh, that big Callahan retrospective, and, and my dad took me to see it, and I just remember thinking and feeling like this is, like that was a life-changing moment for me, like this is, this is it, you know, and I remember also going out and trying to make pictures like him, you know, I, I wasn't, I hadn't even found my own language yet, I just wanted to like go and, and recreate the pictures that he had taken. And um, this is not one of, this is a well-known image, but it's not, you know, his most famous image, but I, I've always loved it. And I've seen it in person several times, different prints of them. And um, yeah, it just really, it, it brought me right back to being a really young photographer, much like what Jess was saying and, and seeing myself in, in something. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear those stories of inspiration um, from both of you. That's great. So you, you both are friends. And as I mentioned, you are collaborators in Strange Fire. Um, but where, how do you know each other? Where, did, where and when did you meet? We were, we were figuring out the details, but we got to know each other in 2013 at the Society for Photographic Education Conference, which was in Chicago that year, just down the street from MOCP, and we were on a panel together. And I think that's when we really yeah. became friends. I think we had crossed paths a little bit before that, but that's when we really got to know each other, and, and we've been good friends since then, and we've also worked together in a, a bunch of different ways that we can delve into. Great, yeah, we can, we can get into that. So I was wondering, Raphael, what is it like to be a model for photographer Jess T. Dugan? That is a great question. Um, every time we, we've done a portrait, it has been at the end of having spent several days together doing things, hanging out, and it's such a different energy. You know, it's, um, I think, something that Jess is really good at in their work is bringing this moment of intimacy and this moment of quietness that creates a real connection with the subject. And I think that for me, those moments have always been really special. and as a photographer as well, as an artist as well, I think being on the other side of the lens is a little strange, but it's also this really cool opportunity to see somebody else work. So there's something nice about laying back and 
and just being like, I'm not working right now. Somebody else is, <laughs> is working and I can just focus on having a, you know, this nice experience with someone I care about. And Jess, do you, do you feel a difference when you're photographing people that you care about and know intimately versus people that you've met, for example, on the road um, doing other projects? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, definitely, you know, everyone I photograph for Every Breath We Drew is someone that I have met somehow and have a connection to. So they're, they're not strangers to me, which was the case often with To Survive on the Shore. So there's always some connection, but I think with people I know well, it's inherently different. And also, even with someone I know well, I think the first time I photographed them is different than the second or the third. So I was noticing when I was looking at the pictures of Raphael, it seems that we've made one a year recently, probably because that's when we end up at conferences or see each other. But there's something about the passage of time that really affects the process as well as my relationship with the person. Great, great. I want to talk a little bit about your very different approaches um, to your work. So just with every breath we drew, um, even though it was kind of personally motivated and you included some self-portraits, it quickly expanded, as I mentioned, into a wide group of people. And then in the project to survive on this shore um, that you collaborated with Dr. Vanessa Fabre on, which is photographs of trans people over 50, that includes interviews by Vanessa, you really traveled throughout the country, finding people from various states, and it became a very politically and socially engaged project that has a kind of a very strong foundation in documentary work and sociology. And in contrast, Raphael, your work seems to be much more kind of inward looking. I'm thinking about your recent project, Imagined Futures, which was a very personal exploration where you entered photo booths and took self-portraits or allowed the machine to take the self-portraits of you with your eyes closed as kind of a meditation on immigration and your experience as an immigrant. And I'm curious to hear more about that kind of private ritual itself. But I read an interview with you where you said, I've never known how to make work that is not deeply connected to my own story. I've never been able to work in an objective documentary way. So, you know, thinking about your two kind of the, your works to date, although your works seem different kind of at face value, um, I'm curious about where you see affinities and connections um, in your practices. And maybe you can reflect on your very different approaches to communicating issues that are sometimes very similar to one another and they're often also innately private and visceral. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you said is right. I um, have always made work that's very connected to my own story and at the same time being very concerned about how it then connects to the rest of the world. I think a lot about, you know, Zarkowski's famous, you know, quote of photographers being mirrors or windows. And while I think that's a very broad categorization of, you know, a swath of, of artists, I do think there's a grain of truth in that and for me, I've always identified as a mirror, always kind of reflecting back uh, what's in my own experience. It does not come naturally to me to go out and just kind of make a project about something outside of myself. And for better or for worse, you know, it is something that I, I, I think of you know, on practical terms as well. In my practice, I think about that, about the challenges of that. You know, I, I do 
spend a lot of time thinking about how to make work about the self that is not narcissistic. And that's why I spend a lot of time trying to connect my work to larger issues or to other people. Because I do think that the more personal something is, the more universal it becomes. So if you can tell a personal story, people can connect to it. But if you leave it at that, then it just becomes like, hey, everybody, look at, look at my life. But if you can then bring in other voices and have conversations around those topics, then I think it can be a really powerful way to connect with the rest of the world. That's great, Raphael. I love that. I think for me, Karen, my work has always centered around identity. And from the very beginning, that's what I was interested in. I've always been interested in making portraits and really understanding myself and my place in the world through that work. And I think part of that for me was my own identity and queerness. But I find now that while those interests are, are the same and are consistent, I tend to swing back and forth pretty heavily between a highly personal and subjective approach to those ideas and a more outward, more documentary approach. So for me, Every Breath We Drew and To Survive on This Shore feel like really different projects, even though formally, you know, they're environmental portraits made in a similar style. They come from very different places for me. And I think in some ways I share that with Raphael in, you know, pulling work that our, our, that our work comes from ourselves and our own experiences in the world, but also wanting to connect it to broader issues like, like he mentions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course the video work you've done is also kind of highly personal. So really in, in some sense in your overall practice, you have kind of taken both approaches more kind of mm -hmm. autobiog autobiographical and then also kind of more documentary, as we said. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. Raphael, I know you've experimented with in a lot of different mediums. What do you think are the limitations of photography in trying to address issues of identity? When, where has that frustrated you or opened up opportunity? I personally find that for me, as an artist who works in an expanded way a little bit in photography, I'm still very image focused. For me, the limitations are not with photography, but with how we've been taught to understand photography and use photography. I, I get very frustrated that you go to art schools and photography will always be separated from all the other fine art mediums, you know, sculptures, painters, you know, illustrators, they all tend to do critiques together, work together, take classes together. And we're always like in the basement by ourselves. We have our own magazines, our own museums, our own conferences, our own festivals, everything we do is siloed. And I think we've been robbed of an opportunity to be a part of a larger conversation. And I think that's why you see now more and more artists expanding, expanding what it means to do photography. Um, there's a really interesting connection between photography and sculpture. Many photographers started as painters, you know, just making photographs as reference and then turned into photographers. I think that we should have a more expanded way of teaching and understanding photography so that we can really sort of exploit the image in a way that's that's more interesting and exciting and has more possibilities. Mm -hmm. For me, the limitations become when I'm trying to tell a specific story or when I'm trying to speak about a specific issue or a specific person's life. And so you know, in my project to survive on this shore, I felt that the text was really necessary because 
that project wasn't about me and my internal state. That project was about a very broad and diverse group of people. And I wanted specifics about their lives and their narratives in that project. And I felt like text brought that in in a way that you just can't, you just can't include that kind of information in a photograph. So that certainly felt like one limitation. And then, you know, I'm thinking also, Karen, you mentioned the video piece. I made a a video piece about my estranged relationship with my father and really wanted to tell a story. In that particular piece, I actually feel like the, the text is sometimes at odds with the images. So, you know, the images themselves don't tell the story that I needed to tell. Um, yeah, so for me, that, that's where the limitation comes in. When I have something very specific I want to communicate, but I also love the openness of, of photographs on their own for different reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Raphael, I want to go back to kind of the point that you made about us being like people approaching photographs in a very particular way with a set of expectations, because I think that must really impact your imagined futures work, which for those who haven't seen it is a set of 50 self-portraits that I mentioned earlier taken in photo booths um, where your eyes are closed. In some ways, it seems that that project is maybe photographically less about being a self-portrait of you, but the, the generic nature of the image and maybe even the process, I think invites kind of a, an openness, right? And a chance maybe for identification from the viewer that maybe is calling for a kind of letting go of what we want from pictures, right? Which is often narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think around that, around the time that project came together, I had, I had lost my interest in operating a camera and I have never lost my interest in photographs and in pictures. And I love, you know, I love working with, with images. I just, I've never been, I've never loved like using a camera. And when that project came about and I was, or, or the concept sort of crept in and I was trying to figure out how I could execute it, um, I was a bit, I was at a loss as to like what to take a picture of or how to make that picture. And the year prior, it had been 2016, uh, the election, I was in Berlin at a residency and, you know, it was just like a really strange night and we were all really confused as to what happened and really mad. And I remember being super emotional and walking back to my studio and, just needing some peace and quiet. Like I just wanted to step away from the street for a moment and take a moment to like breathe. So I stepped into a photo booth, uh, which was, you know, it was kind of there in the corner. And I remember thinking like the world is going to change from now forward. Like it's going to be very different for the people I care about, for women, for uh, people of color, for queer people. And I feel like I want to make a picture of this moment and right now I'm explaining it so rationally. I think in the moment it was kind of visceral and a little more emotional. And I stepped in and I closed my eyes and I tried to imagine a world that might be different uh, for the people I care about. And I made those four portraits and I just carried that with me for a while. And around that time, I think, I think that event um, really got me thinking about what my life would have been like if I had stayed behind and I, it really, all these, what I call imagined futures started to flood in, right? These ideas of what, what life could have been like. And 
I found that strip one day and I realized that that would have been this great, that could be this great strategy to approach the work where I could make the work as I travel, wherever I am, I can find a photo booth. I can, I can make the pictures and um, that there were a lot of parallels there that um, the photo booth would allow me to focus on creating the work and make the pictures without me having to operate anything. And it would also set a lot of the parameters for um, the formal qualities of the work. So it would also check a lot of boxes and solve a lot of problems. And I think we don't often talk about the practical elements of how we make work, but you have to make those decisions, right? So I did some, set some par parameters myself. I decided that they would only be analog photo booths. They would be black and white. So they would be gelatin silver prints. And then the booth kind of took care of the rest in terms of what the picture might look like. And that was also really exciting to not know and let go of that control was really freeing to say like, you take the picture and I'll be surprised as to what comes out on the other side. So do you make them at any certain interval or it's just kind of when you feel like it and is there a significance to the number 50? I'm also just curious about actually what you're thinking about um, mm -hmm. when you take the pictures. I'm, I'm intrigued by the aspect of ritual and I, I forget how you put it, but kind of saying farewell mm -hmm. to an idea. Yeah, so I didn't make them at random. What would happen was that over the course of two years, I would have what I call these visits from these imagined futures. You know, I would, and they sound very esoteric, but I'm talking about just random moments of, of wondering or thinking like what my life would have been like, or even I've been going back home more often recently and, and visiting my family and meeting people who remind me of myself, meeting people who are artists, who are queer people my age down there who have a life there. And I'm starting to see myself reflected in them and thinking like, could that have been me? Um, could that have been my life? Maybe it would have been okay. So whenever one of these thoughts creeps in or one of these imagined lives that I imagined for myself that never happened, that's when I would go seek a photo booth and step into it and imagine that future. And then I would say, thank you to it and I would give it permission to go find someone else to, to live it. So that's what's happening in the booth while I'm making the picture. So I can really focus on that process. And 50 was just a number I chose because it, it had to end. Like I, you know, I, it, it was one of those things that could go on forever. And I, I pulled a lot of them out. I looked at them, I sequenced them and, and 50 felt it had a nice ring to it. You know, uh, these 50 imagined futures they spanned two years and they they held up the kind of space that I wanted physically as an installation. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. One thing that both of your works have in common is that um, you both speak about your work as relating to the concept of masculinity. Jess, in every breath we drew, you state that you're working from your actively constructed sense of masculinity. And Raphael, in your artist statement that I read as part of your introduction, um, you state that your practice centers on how queerness and masculinity intersect with larger topics of our time, such as immigration, memory, and loss. Can you both speak about masculinity and how it functions as a social construct in addition to how it informs your practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, a big question and a great question. You know, a lot of the people that I'm drawn to photograph exist in this space of gentle masculinity. They exist in a, a kind of androgynous space. And 
similar to what Raphael said about making the work on a more visceral level and understanding it later, I was certainly drawn to certain people just innately, but as the project has gone on and I've come to understand what it is, you know, a lot of the people that I'm drawn to embody a kind of quality that I see in myself or want to see in myself. And a lot of my personal interest in masculinity comes from having to define my own masculinity in the world as someone who was born female, you know, identify as non-binary. So I'm not transitioning to male, but I'm very masculine presenting. And so from, from a very early age, I had to negotiate the ways that masculinity fit me and the ways that I reject it in society. And the space that I've settled into personally is one that is more fluid, but the ways in which I'm masculine are um, a different kind of masculine. There's, it's, it's a more gentle version of masculinity, a more vulnerable version of masculinity, as opposed to the, uh, the version that we're often taught in society. So a lot of what I'm looking at in Every Breath We Drew is how to be masculine in this world in a, in a different way, in a more expansive way. It's interesting. I, I love these questions because I was just thinking last night too that there are so many parallels between Jess's work and my work that I hadn't noticed before because formally they're so different. But um, maybe that's why we get along. <laughs> but, uh, for me, masculinity is, is a fairly new topic in my work that, I'm, that I've been exploring the last couple of years. And I'm interested in specifically how Latin American culture creates a concept of masculinity, how it influences the way we think about gender. So I've been trying to parse out or take apart the events in my life that led me to believe that I had to be a certain kind of man and what that means for other boys and other kids uh, that are growing up there now and what are some of these rituals or some of these everyday life things. So I talk about, you mentioned Carga Monton, which is a, a newish body of work that looks at playground brawling and you could say bullying, but really it's just this, this sort of rough play that happens uh, amongst boys. And for me, it was one of the first things that told me like, you're not a normal boy. Why don't you like that? Why don't you want to play rough? Why don't you want to be, you know, suffocated under a pile of bodies? And then slowly through that process coming into my early teens and understanding my own queerness, I started to realize that these moments of violence were my only outlet to touch another man in a way that was acceptable. So these, these brawls, uh, things like sports and anything that made it okay for us to touch one another in any kind of way that was remotely, maybe not gentle, but intimate became my access to intimacy with with other men and not necessarily in a sexual way, just intimacy, closeness. So I began to sort of uh, equate intimacy with violence. And I think for me that ended up not creating much of an issue long-term, but I could definitely see how, you know, that relationship between intimacy and violence could lead to a very dangerous situation in the future. Thank you. Can you both tell me about the Strange Fire Collective? That's got to be an interesting story. Sure. We founded the Strange Fire Collective, as you mentioned, along with Zora J. Murph and Tamita Glasgow in the fall of 2015. 
And we founded to promote work by women, people of color, and queer and trans artists. And we focus specifically on work that is socially and politically engaged. You know, I think for me personally, around the time of, of founding Strange Fire, I had recently finished my MFA, as you know, Karen, in Chicago, and I relocated for my partner's job. And I was finding myself in a new city. I was missing a sense of community. And I really wanted to start something and be part of something that would have, that would build community, both for myself and for other people. And I had also been in and around the art world long enough to be very aware of the inequities in terms of whose work was being shown and presented and, and who was getting space. And so these were my personal inklings for Strange Fire. You know, it took a little while to figure out what the group would be, but once we settled on the four of us and we settled on, settled on a topic, we decided that we wanted to make something that was both accessible to other people and sustainable to us individually. Great. And then the name of the collective did come from the Indigo Girls song. We established <laughs> that. It did. It did. Earlier. They have a, yeah, they have an album called Strange Fire and a song called Strange Fire. And when we were trying to name the collective, that was one of several contenders that we all really liked. And, um, but it's funny because I, I don't, I think I'm speaking correctly. I don't think any of us are that religious. And uh, we realized after we named it that it obviously has a much longer religious uh, connotation. So that's always, you have to be careful what you Google. But, but I love the idea of someone Googling it in a religious context and landing on a... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> on our collective. Yeah, exactly. That's called poetic justice, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But to get back to like the mission of Strange Fire and, you know, when we think about institutions who are under very long overdue scrutiny, right, in terms of racial justice and fighting against white supremacy and the patriarchy and all of this, like, where, where do you see, how do you feel about where institutions are and other arts organizations potentially? And do you see any glimmers of hope, you know, on the horizon here? Or do you have any ideas of how that like where really urgent and long-term change are needed? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a big question, um, but I think, I do see a glimmer of hope. I think, you know, I think we always have to see hope, um, you know, if, if we want to move forward in some ways and we, for better or for worse, we need institutions in some way or another. And I think that it's really great. It's really heartening to see people kind of step out and not be afraid anymore to, to challenge institutions to do better so that's really exciting one of the reasons strange fire has worked so successfully i think is because we've been able to be really nimble and because we sit right in between the institution and the commercial gallery space and we uh, we can respond to our times pretty pretty quickly and i think that more collectives and and groups coming through the arena and and creating projects, I think, can make a really big difference. And then these, proje these projects and these groups can also be brought into institutions to work with them on. Uh, so I think only in the, in the last couple of years, we've started to receive more invitations to work with and interact with institutions. And I really like that because we're able to come in and, and you know, present some challenges, bring our own perspective to the institution as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also adding on that, Raphael, I think one thing we always try to share when we speak about Strange Fire, specifically with a student audience or a younger 
artist audience is that you can really make whatever space you need for yourself. Like we started with a simple idea and it's grown into something meaningful and it doesn't take, as Raphael mentioned, it doesn't take much money. It, it, it's not something that's becoming a business in any way, but it's possible to, to grow a community that you need. And, you know, I think for me with institutions, I'm really interested in institutions. I love museums and I view them as the ideal home for my work. I want to be in dialogue with institutions. And obviously there are a lot of important conversations going on right now, but that's one thing I try to bring into the collective is talking to a lot of curators and people who work in institutions. And I'm often reminded that a lot of people even within institutions are pushing for the change that we so desperately need. And they're not always getting the support that they need or they're not getting the funding that they need. So I guess I just think it's important when we talk about institutions to remember that there are these often massive organizations and a lot of change needs to happen and a lot of growth can happen. But I think there are also some people pushing for that from within in really important ways. Well, we're kind of getting close to the end of the hour. So I think I'll just ask one more question and then we'll open it up for our audience. And that was, I wanted to ask you about the impact of COVID-19 because it really has turned everybody's life upside down. And I'm sure that that's affected your practice and your personal life in some ways. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts or reflections about your experience this year. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll speak briefly both to, to Strange Fire and, and my own practice, but I think for Strange Fire, it's been interesting because a lot of the processes and a lot of the way we were operating before very much mirrors the way the rest of the world is operating today. You know, the four of us speak every month and we've always been able to do that from from far away for the last five years and we've always been able to do all of our programs virtually so it's really interesting to see the rest of the world catch up to a different way of of doing things and for my own practice I won't say much because I think it's the same than most people but you know it's it's been really tough and one of the challenges that I've experienced has been that I have been feeling a lot of pressure from the outside to perform as an artist in order to entertain people during this time. So I think there were times where like, I was seeing a lot of language around like, we need to see artists like putting content out. And, and I was just like, no, we're just people. Like we feel it the same way as everybody else. And if we just wanna like go away for a year and disappear, we can do that. Yeah. I think for me, my reaction has shifted as we've gotten further into the pandemic. You know, in March, when it hit, there was an element of the slowdown that I came to appreciate, even though there were a lot of challenges. I had been on the road a lot for several years before that, and I suddenly was at home. I feel like my professional life completely stopped. I do a lot of work with universities and museums, and everything I do was shut down, which has its challenges, but I also suddenly had three month free calendar, which has just never happened to me. So I made a lot of work in those early months at home. I was making self portraits. I was making still life images. I also, like Raphael said, was feeling some pressure to make work, but I found those restrictions of me not being able to go out and make portraits of other people while frustrating had an, an unanticipated benefit, which was that I returned to making really internal work and, and personal work. I will say as the fall hit, I've been struggling with feeling that 
my professional life and my world is moving along, but it's just in this online distant way. And I'm, I really get a lot of feedback and energy from being in space with other people. And I'm really missing that now at this point in the pandemic. I am making portraits of other people now, but in a, in a kind of distant, more limited capacity. Yeah, like Raphael said, I'm really missing other people. I miss, I miss lectures in person and I miss seeing friends. And, you know, I actually really miss making portraits without this kind of fear of getting too close to somebody. It's, it's, it's sort of contrary to what I do most of the time. Right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I understand the, the rethinking of priorities for sure. I think we all do, right? It's been a very mm -hmm. traumatic year. So thanks for sharing those thoughts. So nice to see you both. I miss seeing people in person too, but I'm glad we got to connect today. Thank yeah. you, Karen. Thanks Thank so you, much, Marissa. Karen. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Focal Point. Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago under the direction of Kristen Taylor, Curator of Academic Programs and Collections. In partnership with WCRX, with help from Matt Cunningham, Wesley Reno, and Zach Cunning. Music by Zavi. Research assistance provided by MOCP Curatorial Fellow Asha Imanville. To see the images we discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash focal point. You can also follow the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Facebook and Instagram at mocpchi, that's M-O-C-P-C-H-I, and on Twitter at mocp underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>